Turn with me, if you would, in your Bibles to 1 Peter chapter 1. We uh, begin this morning a, a study through the book of 1 Peter. And this morning we will look at just the first two verses. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, the, the greeting uh, of the letter. And before we uh, jump into that, let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for uh, your grace, for your gospel, uh, which we find in the scriptures. And we pray, Father, that as we come to your word this morning, that you would give us soft hearts, uh, ready to receive what you have for us. We pray that you would guide us by your spirit uh, as we hear, uh, lead us. Lead us into truth, Father. Lead us into understanding the truth. Lead us into owning the truth. Lead us that we might live the truth in the world in a way that brings you glory and honor. And uh, Father, we pray that you would be at work by your spirit to those ends. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Peter. An apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, I wonder when was the last time you traveled overseas and you found yourself in a place where you didn't know the language, didn't know the customs, didn't know the the transportation system, and you felt, well, uh, disoriented, uh, confused, afraid. When I uh, visited Turkey a few years ago, a friend of mine set up a scavenger hunt And uh, we had two or three teams of about four people each, and he dropped us off in a small town in the center of Turkey and left. And our job was to make it back alive. Having found a whole series of items and gotten to know a little bit of the culture along the way. But here we were uh, in central Turkey being completely out of our element, and it probably would have been, maybe should have been, really scary Uh, except that he gave each team one of his children. And so we had his 12-year-old daughter with us. Uh, Now, she wasn't supposed to help us, uh, but she knew the language, she knew the customs, she knew the menus and the bus routes, and we knew that if we got stuck, she could help us out. And so as disorienting as it was, we weren't afraid because we had a guide. And we begin our study of 1 Peter this morning, and 1 Peter is a letter uh, written by Peter to a group of churches in what is modern-day Turkey. This morning, I just want to answer the question, why 1 Peter? Why, Why study this book? Why listen to this letter? Uh, When we read the New Testament letters, we are reading someone else's mail. Uh, Peter wrote this letter in the first century to a particular group of churches in central and northern Turkey. And so the question is, why is this relevant for us today 
in the 21st century in a PCA church on the campus of the University of Illinois. And the answer, at least in part, and really we'll answer that question as we study the letter throughout the next two months, but the answer, at least in part, uh, is that Peter is an, an apostolic and therefore authoritative tour guide who helps us to navigate our context while conveying God's blessing for the journey along the way. So you can see in your bulletin, on the back of the bulletin, we have an outline there if you want to follow along. We'll look at those three points. We'll look at Peter as an apostolic tour guide who helps us navigate our context while conveying God's blessing. So first, Peter, the apostolic tour guide. Um, my, my friend who lives in Turkey actually writes a travel blog to help people touring Cappadocia. And he helps them plan their trip and navigate the transportation network and find great food and stay in great hotels. And his travel advice has teeth in part because he lives there. Uh, he's eaten the food. He's stayed in the hotels. He spent hours talking with the hotel owners and the cooks and the servers and the taxi drivers. He's been there and done that. And he can bear personal witness to the places that he reviews and recommends. And so when we turn to... First Peter, and we look at Peter and we ask, okay, well, what about this guy? Who, who was he anyway? I mean, what gives him the right to guide us through life? Now, you may uh, remember Peter from the Gospels, uh, from the stories of Jesus' life in the Bible, his life on earth, anyway. Uh, Peter is, is often known, at least, as an impetuous disciple always speaking up, always saying things that maybe the other disciples were thinking but uh, were too afraid to say. He was one of the three, one of the inner uh, circle of Jesus. Uh, More importantly, though, he was one of the twelve. He was one of the twelve whom Jesus appointed as apostles. An apostle uh, was an ambassador, Uh, But it it was more than that. Apostles in Jewish culture had actually a kind of legal power of attorney. They they, uh, could act on behalf of another. And so Jesus appointed the 12 apostles who could go and speak in his name. Now, at first, it seemed like Jesus picked the wrong 12. Judas betrayed him. Peter denied him. And the rest abandoned him. And then Jesus was executed as the king of the Jews. How did Peter go from being a a timid denier on the night of Jesus' betrayal to a bold proclaimer of the gospel 40-some-odd days later at Pentecost? Well, something happened, right? Something happened that changed everything, and by everything, of course, I mean everything. Jesus rose from the dead. And how do we know Jesus rose from the dead? Well, we know that because Jesus reconstituted the twelve, minus Judas, as eyewitnesses to his resurrection. He said specifically to them, you will be my witnesses. This is what it means to be an apostle. It is to be an eyewitness of the resurrected Jesus, to bear a kind of, of legal testimony that Jesus had indeed risen from the dead because you saw him. The apostles not only testified to the fact that Jesus had risen from the dead, they also explained what that meant. 
They helped the early church figure out what are the implications of this thing that Jesus is risen. So Peter proclaimed on the day of Pentecost that Jesus had risen as Lord and Christ, meaning that Jesus was raised as the anointed king of Israel, God's king, really the king of heaven and earth. That's the way Jesus put it in Matthew 28. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So as Christ appointed eyewitnesses, the apostles also bore his authority, the authority of the risen king. It's an authority they used to to organize and guide the young church, the community of those who bowed the knee to Jesus. Now we need to point out, of course, that this was not an authority that could be passed on. Uh, It was not an authority that could be passed on because they didn't have a role that could be passed on. They were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. They couldn't pass on that particular role. Future generations would not have seen Jesus risen from the dead. But they could and they did pass on their teaching. They could pass on the authoritative teaching that is ultimately found in the New Testament. And so Peter says, in actually 2 Peter, at one point, he says, I think it right, as long as I am in the body, to stir you up by way of reminder since I know that the putting off of my body will be soon, as the Lord Jesus Christ made clear to me, and I will make every effort so that after my departure you may be able at any time to recall these things. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Hence the book of 1 Peter. Peter writes these things down so that we... 2,000 years later, might know and might believe in the resurrection of Jesus and the implications of that. The letters of the New Testament are the apostles' way of passing on their authoritative eyewitness testimony to every future generation of the church. And so why 1 Peter? Well, the first reason is this, that Peter is an apostle of Jesus Christ. He's an authoritative eyewitness to the resurrection of Jesus, whose job it was to help the church understand the work of Christ and how we are to live in light of that work even today. And so why first Peter? First, Peter was this apostolic tour guide, this eyewitness who helps us understand life in the present. Second, because Peter helps us navigate our context. You know, having a tour guide is one thing, but having a map is something else. A map gives you the big picture. Sometimes maps are less than helpful. I don't know if you've ever actually used a paper map uh, anymore. But but if you have a paper map, sometimes the first thing you have to do is even figure out where you are on the map. Nowadays, of course, that's not a problem because you open up Google Maps on your phone and you immediately know where you are. You're the little blue dot. That's easy. But Peter's entire letter is is a map of sorts. It's an, it's an orientation. He's, he's helping us understand the context of life and situating us in that context. He's telling us where we fit. But that starts even here. That, that's true throughout the letter, but it starts even here in the greeting. Here he orients us between two poles, so to speak, uh, by, by giving us two truths about who we are. He says to the church, on the one hand, you are chosen of God, And on the other hand, this world is not your home. So first, Peter says, you are chosen of God. He uses the word elect there in verse 1. To those who are elect. 
Now, the word here, uh, the word elect means choice, as in uh, a choice cut of beef. Uh, the, the idea is really that of being highly valued, valued highly by God. Peter here is echoing the words of God to Israel at Mount Sinai in Exodus 19.5, when God says to the Israelites, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. Right? That's, that's the idea here, this, this idea of being treasured and valued, choice by God. Peter is saying to the church, you are special to God, you are treasured, you are valued, you are loved. Now, if we move uh, a bit further in that sentence to verse 2, we see uh, both the, the source of our becoming elect, the, the means of our becoming elect, and the goal. Right? So Peter goes on to say in verse 2 that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. And Peter really spells it out pretty plainly. He says, first, you are elect according to the foreknowledge of the Father. What is the source of our being treasured possessions of God? How did that come about? Well, it's not because of anything in us, Peter says. It's according to the foreknowledge of God. Uh, now, that word foreknowledge sometimes trips us up because on the one hand, uh, right away with half a second's thought, uh, you know it actually doesn't simply mean what it sounds like. Foreknowledge. Why not? Well, because God knows everything beforehand, right? He has foreknowledge of everything in one sense. And so what is Peter talking about here? He's talking about something specific. God's foreknowledge is his intimate, loving purpose for his people. God's foreknowledge is his intimate, loving purpose for his people. His intimate knowledge of, of all things and his purpose for all things are intimately connected so scripture tells us that God knows all things because he plans all things, right? Those two things go hand in hand. In Isaiah 46, God says, I am God and there is no other. I am God, there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Right? God can declare the end from the beginning, meaning he knows the future, he knows what's going to happen, he knows all things, because he's planned it out. That's why he knows. Or God says to Jeremiah in Jeremiah 1 verse 5, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. God knew Jeremiah before he was born. Why did he know him? Well, because he had already consecrated and appointed him as a prophet. And so what does it mean that we are God's treasured possessions, his, his elect ones, uh, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father? It means that we are such according to the plan and the purpose of God. God who knew us and appointed us to this end, that we would be his. So that's the source, the source of our becoming God's treasured possessions. Well, what is the means how does it actually happen in time and space? We are elect, Peter says, in the sanctification of the Spirit or by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, which is to say it's the Spirit who sanctifies us in time and space. That is, the Spirit takes us and sets us apart for God's purposes. The Father plans it. The Spirit carries out that plan, applying the plan of the Father to us through our conversion drawing us to Christ, which is what we see next. 
The source of our election, our becoming God's treasured possessions, is God's foreknowledge, His plan, His purpose. The means is the Spirit's sanctifying work, as the Spirit is at work in the church. Uh, What's the goal? The goal is our conversion and our cleansing by the blood of Jesus. Peter says, we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. The goal of our election, our becoming the treasured people of God, says Peter, is obedience and sprinkling with Christ's blood. Now the word obedience here too, uh, like foreknowledge, might throw us off at first. Uh, as we read through uh, the book of First Peter, we'll hear Peter use this word again and again. It keeps coming up. He keeps talking about obedience. Peter will talk about obedience to the gospel. And what he means by that, actually, I think, is belief in the message of the gospel. And so First Peter 1.22, Peter says, We purify our souls by our obedience to the truth. That is, through believing the message of the gospel. We are made clean. In 1 Peter 2.8, he will talk about those who disobey the word. Who are they? Well, according to verse 7, they are those who do not believe, but stumble over the message of Jesus. They disobey the word by disbelieving it. In chapter 3, verse 1, Peter will talk about husbands who disobey the word. What does he mean by that? Well, likely he means unbelieving husbands. Husbands who have not submitted to the truth in Jesus. And we could go on. Uh, the, the point is, by obedience to Jesus Christ here, Peter isn't so much referring to our behavior first and foremost, but our belief in the gospel. Now that may seem strange, but let me, uh, let me tweak it slightly and give you maybe some Old Test- Testament context, and I think it will make sense. I think when Peter uses this word obedience or obey, most of the time what he means is not doing good things, or even simply belief in general, but conversion. Uh, My obedience to the gospel is my conversion to Christ. And so Peter is saying, we have become God's treasured possession according to the Father's plan by the sanctification of the Spirit for conversion and cleansing by Christ's blood. Now, the, the Old Testament context is this. This phrase, sprinkling with blood, has a history, right? Peter didn't invent it. And one of the most important places we find it is actually, again, in the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 24. In Exodus 24, God is making his covenant with his people, and he's already called them his treasured possession back in chapter 19. He he gave them the law in chapters 20 through 23. And in chapter 24, God seals his covenant with his people. And two key things happen in the beginning of that chapter that Peter picks up on here. One is the people take an oath to obey the Lord. They say, all that you have said, we will do. They say that twice in chapter 24. And then Moses sprinkles them with the blood of the sacrifice. In that moment, Israel is constituted the the covenant people of God. They become God's people. What is Peter saying then as he takes this language and applies it to us? He's saying, you have been made the treasured possession of the Father to the end that you would be converted to Christ, committed to him, and sprinkled with his blood, the blood of the new covenant. The goal of our election is our becoming the people of God. The goal is our conversion to Christ and our cleansing with his blood. Now, will that conversion issue forth in a life of daily obedience? Well, of course, that's the goal. 
And Peter will talk about that quite a bit, but actually he won't use, he, he will use the term doing good when he talks about our living out the faith. He'll talk about our doing good or our good conduct. The term obedience, though, is used, again, to, to refer to this initial response to the gospel. Will I obey the gospel by believing in Christ, by being converted to him, or will I disbelieve? Well, church, you, according to Peter, are God's treasured possession. According to the plan of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to the end, that you would be converted to Christ, that you would trust in him, that you would be cleansed by his blood. This is the first kind of orienting pole that, that Peter gives us, and it should bring us joy, right? It should bring us joy that the Father loves us, that the Father values us, that he treasures us as his choice people, that he does this not because of anything in, in us, but actually this was his plan all along, right, from the very beginning, that he would draw us to himself by his Spirit and through Christ. The second orienting thing that Peter tells us about ourselves is that this world is not your home. Peter not only says that we are elect, he says in verse 1 that we are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Now, some think that this phrase, exiles of the dispersion, is to be taken literally or, or physically, that the people in, in the churches to whom Peter was writing were physical exiles of the Jewish diaspora, Jewish dispersion. Uh, they, they, these were uh, Jewish people who were spread throughout the world, uh, in part in light of the exile to Babylon many years earlier, outside the land of Israel. But that's actually not what Peter is talking about. And uh, he, he's referring here to Christians as people who do not belong in this present world. Uh, some older commentators use the term resident aliens. Uh, some use the term refugees. Uh, all to point out the fact that we are exiles, that this world is not our home. Whatever your term you use, the point is that to be a Christian is to be uh, a stranger, an alien, an exile, someone who lives in a place that is not their home. How do we know that's what Peter's referring to? Well, well first is actually the, the Jewish or the Old Testament context itself. Uh, this phrase has always had a metaphorical side to it. Abraham and Jacob call themselves sojourners in the promised land, and, and that makes sense, right? They, they were wandering through. They, they never quite settled in the land. But even when the people were settled in the land, God says of Israel in Leviticus 25, 23, as they're looking forward to settling in the land, he says, for you are strangers and sojourners with me. And David recognizes the same in Psalm 39. He says, David, right, who is the king of Israel, he says, I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. The writer of Hebrews in chapter 11 says that this pilgrim lifestyle is really the paradigm for the Christian life. We too are pilgrims on earth looking forward to a lasting city with foundations. And the second reason that, that this phrase uh, in the beginning, uh, exiles of the dispersion, must be understood to refer to the Christian life and not to maybe uh, that particular context in some specific way <coughs> is because of Peter's Gentile audience. Peter is not writing to Jews in the Jewish dispersion because Peter is not writing to Jews. Uh, Again, some people disagree with that, but the area to which he was writing, it, it was ethnically diverse. That was, that was true, but it was dominantly Gentile. 
And Peter says of his hearers that the lifestyle they inherited from their forefathers was futile in 1 Peter 1.18, and that their past included doing what the Gentiles do, 1 Peter 4.3, and that their neighbors are surprised that they don't join in with them, 1 Peter 4.4. Uh, these are not things that Peter would have said of his fellow Jews. Their forefathers were Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. If they were uh, converted Jews, their past would not likely have included a pagan lifestyle, as Peter says, but a Jewish one. And their neighbors would not be surprised that they didn't join in because the Jews were known for being aloof from the Gentiles in that day. Therefore, Peter's audience was primarily not uh, Jewish converts to Christianity, but Gentile converts, uh, those who were uh, converted in those regions uh, in modern-day Turkey. But they were Gentiles who, therefore, had left their Gentile life behind them. They had become citizens of heaven, which means that they were now strangers and aliens on earth. They no longer fit in with their fellow Gentiles. They were now different. What does it mean to be exiles? On the one hand, it means, as we look at the big picture of uh, Scripture, the big story of the Bible, it means we are exiles from Eden. That's when our exile first took place, when we were cast out of the garden, out of God's presence. But it also means we're citizens of heaven. That's the phrase that Paul will use in Philippians 3.20. He will say that our citizenship is in heaven, which means that we are aliens and strangers on earth. It also means, I think, for Peter's readers that therefore they will be rejected by their neighbors, uh, to be treated as exiles and so looked down on and despised as people who don't fit. Peter's letter is actually filled with comments about the persecution that they face. To be exiles, aliens, and refugees tends to mean to be despised and rejected. That's part of the meaning that Peter is bringing out when he calls them exiles. What does it mean to be scattered, right? Uh, This word dispersion, to be exiles of the dispersion. uh, It means God's people are dispersed, scattered throughout the world, meaning throughout all cultures of the world, uh, all places. Again, he lists a number of different uh, cities here. He names just a few, Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. This is an important reminder that, as we'll see, uh, because we are so often tempted to settle down, to fit in, to go along. We forget that this world is not our home, that we are citizens of heaven, and so aliens and strangers on earth When we do that, we stop our journey, right? We lose our forward motion. We fix our eyes on the here and now to really the harm and the danger of our souls. So by this phrase, exiles of the dispersion, Peter is saying, don't settle. Keep looking ahead. Keep moving forward. Keep your eyes set where Christ is and on his return. And yet he's saying something more than that when he uses this phrase, something that will come up again and again, something that is uh, profoundly helpful in the midst of our exile. As we read through the Old Testament, right, Israel did not only go into exile, they did that. They went into exile in Babylon. They were dispersed throughout the world as a result. But the promise of the prophets was always the promise of return. The exile would end. That the people would return to the promised land, the kingdom would be restored. 
The exile was never the final word in the Old Testament. God promises a restoration. And Peter will pick up on that again and again. He'll say, yes, we suffer, but we have hope. Our exile will end. God's kingdom will be restored in fullness. And, and yet there's one difference uh, between us and uh, the, the Jewish hope. And it's that uh, it's not that we will return to the promised land. It's that our king will return to us. Our situation is more like that of Abraham, who lived in the promised land already, but as a stranger, awaiting the day when God's kingdom would come to the land of Canaan. We live in our own Canaan, awaiting the return of the king, the coming of the kingdom in fullness, and the renewal of all things. Until then, we live as exiles of the dispersion, needing Peter's reminder that this world is not our home. So why First Peter? Well, on the one hand, Peter acts as this kind of apostolic tour guide uh, leading us through life. He helps us navigate our context, reminding us that we are the chosen of God, but that this world is not our home. And finally, we see Peter conveying God's blessing for the journey. And so Peter acts right as this apostolic tour guide. He orients us, orients us to the landscape by giving us these two poles, right? reminding us we are the chosen of God, this world is not our home. What does Peter offer for this journey? Well, on the one hand, he offers us the letter of 1 Peter, right? We'll see, we'll see that as we go on, but where does he start? Well, he doesn't promise right, low turbulence on the flight. In fact, he's going to spend a lot of time preparing us for a bumpy ride. He doesn't promise friendly natives. In fact, he'll talk a lot about the rejection that we will face every day. And so what does he offer? He offers grace and peace to get us through. Grace, the unmerited favor of God in Christ, the unearned love of our Father, the gift of God's pleasure in us, his delight in us. Peace, the, the harmony that results. Peace with God because we're reconciled to Him through Jesus. Peace within ourselves because our guilt and shame have been removed. Uh, peace with others as we're brought together through the blood of Jesus in the church. In one sense, peace is the, the total salvation of the whole person, right? The perfect harmony of all things that does and will result from Christ's work. Peter says, may we know more and more of this grace and peace. How will we get through the journey, knowing more of God's grace and more of God's peace and more of his favor, more of his love, more of his son who made all these things possible? And that's what Peter's going to give to us as we read through this book, as we study it, as we listen, as we learn more of God's grace, more of God's peace, more of his favor, more of his son. And so why First Peter? Well, in First Peter, we, we have an, an apostolic tour guide who helps us navigate our context, reminding us that we are the Father's treasured possession, that this world is not our home, and offering us God's blessing for the journey. So may grace and peace be multiplied to you as we open our hearts to this letter together. Let's pray. Our Father, we... We sometimes forget 
both your gracious love and delight in us as your treasured possession and that this world is not our home. Father, sometimes we begin to despair of your love and we look to the world to satisfy. Father, we pray that you would teach us uh, to remember your love so that we can keep our eyes on you and continue moving forward in this pilgrimage as we await the return of Jesus and the establishment, the final, full, complete establishment of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.